Welcome to the clubhouse with Patrick Folks on ABC Grandstand Digital. Hello, rugby fans. Welcome to the Clubhouse Grandstand's dedicated rugby show. I'm Patrick Folks here with you in the ABC Grandstand studio. Packed show for you today. We're going to talk to Ross Reynolds and go through Australia's disappointing loss to the All Blacks in Wellington. Ross is our rugby expert and we'll give you the full analysis of that match. Plus, I also managed to catch up with Fairfax writer Peter Fitzsimons last Friday uh, before the Bledisloe Cup action from the weekend in Wellington. And I had a chat to him about this uh, new book that he's got coming out uh, called More Important Than Life or Death Inside the Best of Australian Sport. He's the editor of that along with Greg Groudon. I'll have a chat with him about that. Well worth hanging around for that one. Plus, we're also going to look at the Shoot Shield competition. We had qualifying finals on the weekend, as well as Queensland Premier Rugby as well. We're well into finals in both competitions. We'll have a look at that and bring you the latest from both. Just looking at the results, though, from the weekend. So, officially, it was the Wallabies going down to the All Blacks 27-16 in Wellington in the other rugby championship game. A much-improved Argentina 17 went down to South Africa 22 at home. So looking at the table at the moment, it's New Zealand on top along with South Africa. Both teams are on nine points. Argentina is in third. They're on one point. And Australia in fourth on zero points. But uh, Wallabies fans, bear in mind, Australia has played the All Blacks twice and hasn't had a chance to have a crack at the other nations. In other rugby news, in terms of qualifying for the 2015 Rugby World Cup, Canada defeated the United States 13-11 to in their final qualifier, which means they have qualified straight into Group D of that World Cup in England in 2015. Coming up next, though, we talk all things rugby and Bledisloe Cup with Grandstand's Ross Reynolds. Stay with me. On ABC Grandstand Digital, The Clubhouse. The Clubhouse. With Patrick Folks. So another year, another Wallabies loss, and I know many of you will be feeling that disappointment across the weekend, particularly those of you who have rocked up to work on Monday morning with gloating New Zealanders and All Black fans in the office. But uh, to make sense out of the chaos, we're joined on the line now by Grandstand's expert commentator and a former Wallaby himself, Ross Reynolds. Ross, welcome back to the clubhouse. The final score being 27-16, I mean, you did say it last week, it was going to be a tough uh, duty for Australia to win in Wellington, but God, we still wanted it to happen, didn't we? Well, we said that uh, we wouldn't let them score 47, which Australia did, but I did also say we'd struggle to score 29, which we unfortunately also didn't do. It was a lot tougher. The conditions weren't as good, a fair bit of rain coming in from Wellington and uh, a bit of wind circulating around the cake tin. So difficult conditions compared to Sydney's perfect night a week ago. 
Jaco Pepper, the referee, is sort of, uh, I guess, uh, drawn the attention of uh, head coach Hewan McKenzie because there was a couple of uh, cynical penalties, particularly by the All Blacks, who were really putting pressure on Will Genia around the base of the ruck and particularly at scrum time. What did you make of of Jaco's refereeing performances? Because there was that incident as well, uh, not to TMO uh, uh, what looked like a Stephen Moore try early on in the match. Well, I can't believe that. Jacko Piper's uh, good enough to be a test referee because on that form he's certainly well short of the mark. I thought his performance was, uh, was disgraceful. He didn't A, uh, stop the All Blacks from uh, giving away penalties inside their AN22. They, once they've made that penalty then they were prepared, happy to give away a second and third to stop Australia from scoring. That uh, opportunity when Leofano made that beautiful break right through the middle, tackled out a metre out by uh, Aaron Smith. Smith wouldn't release him and then Kieran Reid just came around and took uh, Will Genia completely out of uh, the position. They couldn't even pass the ball. So surely that's a yellow card at the very least, if not a, a red card. It was so cynical. It was uh, bordering on the ladder, I thought. And uh, he just did not control the game and did not get the All Blacks uh, back on the fringe most of the night. And uh, if you're going to beat the All Blacks in New Zealand, you need impartial refereeing. And that was not the case on Saturday. And then Ma Nonu uh, might, might be in a bit of uh, strife because of that shoulder charge that could be looked at uh, post-match, but we'll keep you updated in the clubhouse as that progresses. The scrum, Ross, it was the second week that we've had uh, these new scrum laws. Uh, what did you make of the Wallaby scrum in Wellington? Well, I think uh, that Tony Woodcock is just a master. He, uh, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, he just mixes it up all the time. And Australia were attacking five metres out, and Alexander hits Woodcock, Woodcock with a really good engagement. And Woodcock just gives him, you know, just gives up and just drops back. So Alexander goes to ground because he's got nothing to push against. Penalty New Zealand. Now, five metres out, why would you want to collapse the scrum? You want to shove New Zealand off the ball. You know you've got a real good chance. You've got a good field position. So any referee worth his salt that's played the game would understand that the attacking uh, scrum, you know, or defending scrum, but they're, uh, they're attacking the going line, they would not want to be collapsing it. So it's just little things like that I just found really difficult to understand. It's uh, one of the elements that's been talked about now in both games is Israel Folau and, and certainly his strength with the ball. We saw that with the uh, intercept try, what, uh, what he can do, and that was just him off his own bat. He really just made something out of nothing. Is it time now to move Israel Folau to fullback at, uh, at test level? I think so. He was outstanding for the Waratahs uh, during the Super 15 and had the most run metres uh, in the Super 15 competition. So he's got the proof uh, on the board that he can do it. And that intercept was uh, fantastic. He still had a lot to do. He had to still be Israel Dag, which he did without getting a hand touched on him. And then, you know, Ben Smith ran him down, you know. So the All Blacks really, uh, when there's a turnover, they react about two seconds quicker than the Wallabies. And, uh, you know, that should have been a simple try, but he still had a bit of fair bit of work to do. So... Israel Dag, you know, was made to look a bit of a fool, but he's done it to so many players. He's an incredible talent, uh, uh, Israel Palau, and I think he should go to 15. It has been one of the conundrums for Australian rugby, figuring out how to best use Israel, and it seems with every test we 
get closer to figuring out. So maybe by the time we take on the Springboks, he'll be the attacking <laughs> potent weapon we want him to be at the test level. Um, Ross, the question we've been sort of looking at each week, because it is an important question about who is running in at number 10 for Australia, because it's so critical to unleashing the Australian backs, as many of our listeners would be aware. Matt Tamua, his second test, um, he, he played 60 minutes there until Quade Cooper came on. What did you think of him after his performance in Sydney going into Wellington? I think he's still he's good. Uh, Tamua, he's got a good combination with Christian Leofano. They combine very well, and they put Leofano through for a couple of uh, nice line breaks, and he mixes it up with Adam Ashley Cooper very well. I, I think he's worth persisting with. Um, and, and you've got that ability to bring uh, Quade Cooper on if the game is stagnant and you need a game breaker. And uh, I think that's a good situation to have. You've got a sort of bit of an ace up your sleeve uh, in that last 20 or 30 minutes. But uh, So I, I would definitely persist with Matt Tamur. So did you think Quade made much of a, an impact off the, bench in, in, off the bench in these last two games? He did in uh, Sydney. I don't think he did too much in Wellington. Uh, not that I saw anyway. Uh, so... You know, I think Ewan McKenzie will try and keep uh, stability in his selection and uh, probably persist with Tamur uh, against the Springboks and then the Argentinians. So it'll be interesting with uh, the defence coming from those two sides, not quite off, quick as off the line as the All Blacks. They were just so quick. They pressure you, uh, particularly at 10, so hard. Uh, those other two teams, South Africa and Argentina, will give him a little bit more room, probably a metre, half a metre, and that could be the difference. Well, we've lost the Bledisloe Cup for this year, Ross, but we've still um, got the Rugby Championship to compete with. So what changes do you think, if any, Ewan McKenzie has to make in order to get victories against the Springboks in Argentina? Because he's, he's 0 from 2 now as Wallaby coach, which I'm sure would be frustrating uh, Ewan greatly. Yeah, and he, you know, he's played against the All Blacks, so they're not too bad of teams to lose to. Uh, you um, you know they're number one in the world for a very good reason, and uh, Australia played a lot better than they did in Sydney, pushed them uh, you know a lot closer, but still not uh, close enough to win the first time in New Zealand since 2001, since John Eels uh, led us to victory over there. So it is a little bit depressing that it's been so long. Depressing is the understatement, Ross. <laughs> for those with New Zealand relatives, <laughs> it's yeah, been a difficult 11 years. Especially when they remind you of that fact on a Monday morning, as you said. Yes. <laughs> it's hard enough to put up with it on Saturday night, let alone being reminded. But does the sweeping changes need to make, or is this the squad that we now persist with? Because there was a big squad that he called for in that, that first 40-man uh, Wallaby squad when he first came into the role. Does he go back and have a look at a couple of players now, or do we say this is the team and we, we, we back them? Well, I'm not sure there's a lot left in the cupboard to pull out. So, you know, maybe Ben Robinson uh, could edge his way back in, having been eliminated from the uh, the final 30. But Michael Hooper was, again, outstanding. So there were some good signs there that uh, I think you and McKenzie should persist with this nucleus of this team for the next couple of years. And, uh, you know, I think they will grow as a team. I think, you know, James O'Connor did some very nice things uh, on the wing and looked a lot more comfortable for his second game in a row. He made some defensive errors in the first test, but he was very solid in the second. So give him a bit of time. He improved immensely. And he made a beautiful break that uh, nearly scored a try early in the second half. 
Yeah, James O'Connor, one of the significant improvers in the second test. But I guess, Ross, one thing that we can take heart from it is that maybe it's back to the good old days of New Zealand peaking just before uh, the World Cup and where maybe we're on the rise just before England 2015. What, what do you think, Ross? Well, let's hope. They've always been the best team in the world between World Cups and then only have won two because they don't uh, perform as well in the World Cup under that enormous pressure. So let's hope that's the case. Um, it's not that far away. Uh, we're two years out, so you know Australia can build to be very competitive at the World Cup because uh, you know it's a different format and uh, you got to perform on the stage and you can't have any weaknesses and uh, you know injuries play a big role in that. So you know Australia's got a very good chance to build towards a World Cup and be very competitive. Well, Ross, I guess now it's all about uh, looking towards the Springboks and uh, Argentina because we've still got plenty of rugby left in the rugby championship. Well, we play the Springboks in Brisbane and where the players really love playing and they've got a great record. So that should uh, hopefully turn our, uh, our chances around. And then we've got Argentina in Perth. So we could win the next two and then be on a bit of a roll for the two away games in South Africa and Argentina to finish off this rugby championship in a high note. Ross, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Patrick. That was Ross Reynolds joining us in the clubhouse. Last Friday, I caught up with Fairfax writer Peter Fitzsimons and uh, talked to him about his new book, More Important Than Life or Death, Inside the Best of Australian Sport, which he has co-edited with Greg Groudon. And I started off by asking Peter if it was a different role for him being an editor as opposed to his usual role of writing. Oh, uh, look, I mean, it was... I've, I've loved sports journalism ever since the late 70s. I suppose I really... Well, I suppose I really focused. I grew up on a farm at Peach Ridge, and we'd get the Sydney Morning Herald, you know, delivered in the mailbox, and I'd go down and get it at morning tea, and, and sort of mum, I guess, would go for the fun section, dad mostly the sports section. I'd get the sports section after dad. And as I describe in my introduction, I suppose the first time I sort of focused on what sports writing could be, there was a piece by Jason Daisy, who was well before your time, but it was, in fact, it was the early 80s. And he was talking about he'd been hitchhiking and he'd been picked up by the coach of Manly. And it was suddenly, it was a sort of sports writing that was not simply who won the game on Saturday and why they won. It was about people. And I think for me, the great joy of sports journalism is the colour, the movement, the passion, the romance, the anger, the, the, the tears, you know, that there is more scope. If you're interested in writing itself, there is far more scope to, to write colloquially, to play with the words, with the imagery, uh, than there is in, let's say, talking about a reserve bank rise. You know? <laughs> so in all the fields of journalism, it seems to me sport lends itself most to that kind of stuff. I suppose politics is also a bit like that, although because politics is so important, you know, you perhaps sometimes you have less leeway in, in, in having fun with it, whereas sport, for me, sport has always been the pepper and salt of life. I don't, it's never been my main meal, but yes, going through and sorting out which ones could, which ones were the best, uh, sometimes difficult. I must say Greg Groudon did the bulk of that sorting, but I, I love the whole process. Well, Peter, you talked about that in the book, about in terms of the content of the book, that the writing mm. itself is, is not just sports writing at its best, but writing at its best. Yes. And that in the book, you, like, the reader is really you know, taken to places they never imagined existed. And I guess that's the, the fascinating thing about how good writing, particularly sports writing, can really take you beyond just, just what you yes. see on TV and what I hate to admit, maybe radio as well, but into the people behind the journey. I am a devotee of an American sports writer by the name of Gary Smith, who came out to Australia in the year 2000. And he stayed here for a year, and he only writes, even these days, if ever your listeners are interested, if they Google 
G-A-R with one R, Gary Smith, Sports Illustrated. He only writes four times a year, and he does 10,000 words a time. Every time he writes, Sports Illustrated goes up two hundred, uh, goes up 65,000 in circulation because the word spreads. There's another Gary Smith story. And I used to read his stuff, and he and I are very, very close. And I, I had this uncomfortable feeling that his stuff was 10 times better than mine. And I was right. It, it is 10 times better than mine. And the reason is that Gary was able to, his breakthrough in sports journalism was to take the devices of fiction and apply them to non-fiction so that it, when you're reading one of his stories, you feel like you're there. You're in the moment. You're, you're absolutely with him. When David, my favourite Gary Smith story, David Duval, is uh, the famously taciturn American golfer. And the opening scene of a Gary Smith story is the seven-year-old boys lying down on the bed, his mother sitting on his legs, his father's holding down his shoulders, and the needle's driving into his bones, and he's screaming, screaming. And it's like this. And, and what it was, was, was David Duval had a bone marrow disease when he was eight years old, seven years old, and he had to have these twice-daily injections. And the best of the sports writing in this book if I may say, more important than life or death, which is a, basically an anthology of the best of Fairfax writing, is like that. The best of it, you're in the moment, you're there, and you get, ideally, an insight into who Yelena Dockich is, who, who, who Keith Miller is. I hate, to, I hate to cite my own story, but, <laughs> but of, all the, of all the sort of stars or whatever that I've interviewed over the years, the one that really just made the most impact on me was Keith Miller. I interviewed him when he was 83 years old. He didn't have a long, long time to live, but he, he was just... I had this strong sense I am in the presence of a prince among men. And I, I don't tell... The, I tell the... Well, the story that made the most impact on me in the book, in, the, in interviewing Keith, was he uh, talked about after the war. So Keith had been heavily involved in the war, Sir Donald Bradman had not, and in the first test after the uh, after the war was over, Keith uh, Keith was bowling uh, was up at, up at, up at the Gabba, and he's he's ripping in, and he starts hitting the English opening batsman Bill Edridge, and he hits him up around the chest, and he eases off a bit. He thinks, you know, geez, you know, this is just quick, and I'll ease off a bit. And as Keith told me, as the tape recorder was rolling, um, at the end of the over, Bradman came up to me and he said. Nugget, nugget, get into him. And <laughs> as Keith said into my tape recorder, he said, he said, you know, I, th I thought to myself, there's my mate Bill being in the toughest part of the war. And there's Bradman being in the war for five minutes. <laughs> and I thought, whoa. And I went back, I went back to the Herald and said, I mean, because Bradman, to be fair, Bradman had a medical condition, whatever, but he didn't, he basically was a PE instructor in Victoria, at Victoria, while Keith was fly, flying fighters, um, you know, over Germany, the line, or bombers, the line, the line, Keith said in 1975, had, he was asked, had you ever been to Germany? He replied, only ever at night. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back to the Herald, and the strict Herald protocol is if I interview you and you say stuff into my tape recorder, well, I own it. You don't own it. This is an, if it's clear to you that it's an interview situation, that's it. So Keith had said this into my tape recorder. Against that, he was a man that had had a stroke. He was 83 years old. And so I thought to myself, you know, this is explosive. I've got, I've got, I've got cricket, Australian cricket's second greatest cricketer, really, 
really having a go, calling into question the courage or bravery of Australia's greatest cricketer. So I thought to myself, what I'll do, I wrote the whole thing out and I called Keith up the following day and I've highlighted the particular passage that I've just described, ready to hit the delete button if he didn't want it. And I got to that part and I paused, ready to hit delete, and Keith said, 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10. He knew exactly what he was doing. And at the end of the, at the, end of the piece, I, uh, I, he just said to me one thing. He said, look, I know what you're doing, Peter, and I know what I've said, but one thing, please don't put any puff on it. Don't put any sort of huge headline, it, headline on it, sort of uh, Miller calls Bradman a coward or anything like that. And I said, Keith, leave it with me. And I said it to my sports editor and I said it to my editor-in-chief. And the following day, I picked up the paper there, top of the front page, big puff, big photo, Keith Miller, my problem with Bradman. <laughs> <laughs> I called him up and said, Keith, I am so sorry. And he said, look, Peter, I've been a journalist. I understand it. But, yeah, I mean, there's there's all kinds of figures uh, in the book. Um, I love, there's a piece, lovely piece by Peter Stone talking about Cliffy Young. Now, you remember, the, the you, would have, you would have seen that. Uh, I saw the miniseries ABC. on ABC yeah. TV, but I wasn't quite around back then. <laughs> no, I was going to say, you sound a bit too young for me for that. But Cliffy Young, when Cliffy Young started shuffling down from Sydney to Melbourne, I mean, it was it was right up there with the America's Cup. The whole the whole place was transfixed. Um, Jess, Jessica Halloran, who's a terrific writer, she's now sadly gone to news. <laughs> Left Fairfax, she'll come home though. She's done a terrific piece about uh, Yolanda Dokic. And again, there's an example where Yolanda Dokic is mono-dimensional to most of us. You know, who is she? What is she? from what she about, what she like as a person, because you only see her on the television screen. And for many years, you know, the, the, the headline act in the family was the mere dockage, her father. But then, when, you know, when Jessica talks to her, you know, the story comes out and it's a pretty sad story of, you know, a totally dysfunctional family and her basic way out was to hit a tennis ball harder. The story of, of your writing career, um, I, mean, I was fascinating to read about uh, when you first wrote your article yeah. on Italian, uh, Italian rugby and you waited uh, to see if the, uh, if the Sydney Morning Herald would publish it. And then it's on um, the, the back page, as it were, to, to be the lead story. Do you still have that excitement now, having written so many books on different topics and you obviously your weekly column for, for Fairfax The Fitz Files? Is that excitement still there for you? I, I love it as I always did, but I don't think you'd ever duplicate the joy of the, your first top of the back page or top of the front page article. For me, you know, I tried a lot of things and, and done no good at them. Look, I, I was at Sydney University and I loved being at uni and I loved playing rugby, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I tried law, I wasn't cut out for that. I tried business, I wasn't cut out for that. Um, I tried uh, start being a building retaining walls. I wasn't particular, even though I could lift sleepers on my own, I wasn't particularly cut out for that. But the day that I got published, top of the back page of the Sydney Morning Herald writing an article on rugby, put down the glasses, that's all I ever want to do, you know, in terms of at least writing. Funnily enough, as we speak, um, I'm in a car in the northern suburbs of Sydney heading up to Newcastle. I'm about to speak to 200 journalism students at, um, at Newcastle University. And what I hope to be able to put across is the joy of journalism, of writing, if this is your passion. It would be an agony if you weren't into it, but I'm totally into it. I love one of the lines of my wife uses is find a job that you love and you'll never work again. So for me, when I'm writing my column for the Sydney Morning Herald or I'm just right now finishing my book on Ned Kelly, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like you, bloody beauty, how good is this? And what I'm proudest of with, with, with the book more important than life or death, inside the best of Australian sport. It is sort of the best of the work of myself and my colleagues 
uh, or is it my colleagues and I? One of those two. I'll work it out after I get off the phone. <laughs> uh, the best, the best we've done. You know, so you put forward. Well, this is. You know, I've been doing it for thirty years. Um, I'm, that piece that I've got in there, Keith Mellon, that's as good as I can do. Well, the book is more important than life or death inside the best of Australian sport. Peter, it's been an honour to talk to you today. Thank you very much, and good luck with the book. Thanks. On ABC Grandstand Digital, The Clubhouse. The Clubhouse. With Patrick Folks. And that was Peter Fitzsimons joining me last Friday in the clubhouse, and it was definitely great to catch up with Peter. Time now to move north of the border and focus on our grassroots rugby. And, of course, we're talking about Queensland Premier Rugby. Luke Pentony still not on deck, but he will be back next week. And uh, it's time now to look at the, the, the first week of finals that we saw. We saw GPSs taking on East at Ballymore number one. And it was GPS that went down in that match. It was 21-6 to in favour of Easts. So G- GPS now moves to the preliminary final. They're not out yet. In the minor semi-final, it was the University of Queensland against Brothers. And Uni managed to defeat Brothers 26-12. to So Brothers now bow out of the competition for this year. So the preliminary final next week will be GPS taking on the University of Queensland at Ballymore number 1. And that's all to see who will be taking on Easts in the grand final. They obviously get the week off after winning the major semi-final against GPS. So we will have some in-depth analysis on Queensland Premier Rugby next week with Grandstand's rugby reporter. In Queensland and online reporter as well, Luke Pentony, so stay tuned for that. But it was uh, an action-packed weekend in the Shoot Shield. We had uh, games across both the Saturday and the Sunday, and we'll be talking We'll be talking with Natalie Yonides from ABC TV Sports. She's going to take us through that in just a moment. But it was a, a really intense match out at Manly Oval. It was Manly taking on Sydney University. Now, even though it was uh, technically Manly were playing at home, Uni were the home team just based on the fixtures of the finals. The final score was Sydney Uni 25, Manly 23, but they only led for the last play of the match. Inching towards the line, Uni. Tills picks it up. They're that close, two metres. Field goal. He's got it. He's got it. And a Foley field goal wins the game. Yeah, Uni, they do know how to win, don't they, in the competition in Sydney. The shoot shield for our listeners outside of the state. To talk more about that match, ABC TV sport reporter Natalie Yonides joins me in the studio now. Natalie, what an epic finish for Uni, but surely a lot of disappointed Manly fans out there. Oh, Pat, it was so demoralising for Manly. They led for almost 80 minutes and they still lost the match. It was just because... It just so happened to be in uni's um, in their near their try line and um, after the bell and they just kept pushing and pushing and eventually they they got the goal through Bernard Foley which a lot of people weren't expecting. I mean, a normal uni team would try and get it over the line in a rolling mall, but. I mean, it wasn't uni-like, but it was Waratah-like, which Bernard Foley is. <laughs> and that final score there was 25-23, but there was a big turning point in that match earlier on there, wasn't there, Nat? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Manly led 17-0 probably about 25 minutes into the first half. And Geordie Reid was yellow-carded. He was warned once, and then he was yellow-carded. So he was out for 10 minutes, and he was having a fantastic game. Everyone was sitting there thinking, 
how good is this kid? He's going to have a really good future and having an amazing first quarter. And so Uni really took advantage of that period. They scored their first through Kingston and then they got another one on the bell of the half, of halftime through Phipps. And next thing you know, it's 17 to 10 at halftime and they're right back in it. It was a disappointing loss there for Manly, but they're still in the competition, so they're not done yet for this season. They're taking on Eastern Suburbs next week. But let's talk about some of the other games, because there are two teams that are out. Obviously now it's West Harbour and Norths that are, and that have bowed out for the competition this year. What happened there, Nat? Well, in our other game, West Harbour took on Randwick, and Randwick surprisingly won that one, 37-24. It never looked in doubt, really. West Harbour didn't give them, didn't really show any of their attacking flair that we're used to seeing. So I'd say it's probably the upset of the first week of the finals, given Manly didn't win yesterday. Uh, Randwick fresh off a 78-0 loss to Uni, just bounced back. They were incredibly confident going into this game. And eighth team finished, well, the 18th beat the fifth team. So a little bit of an upset. And that in the other results? Well, minor premiers Eastwood held off a fast-finishing Southern Districts 33-27. to They've earned the week off, which is fair enough. They did finish on the top of the ladder, though it was a close one. And in the other elimination final, Eastern Suburbs defeated Norths 36-27. to So coming up this week on ABC TV, which you can catch on both the Saturday and the Sunday from 3pm, we're going to have... The first game in semi-final uh, one, I guess, is Southern Districts against Randwick. And then you've got uh, Eastern Suburbs and Manly, both at Coogee And, of course, it's all about who will be taking on Eastwood and Sydney Uni, respectively, uh, in those in the other preliminary finals. I mean, Southern Districts, it does. Uh, you do have to, as they say, lose one to win one. They did lose in the grand final last year, and I'm sure Cam Blades will be uh, using that as motivation to spur Southern Districts on. But Eastwood under John Menenti have definitely performed well this year. And ABC TV caught up with John, um, coach, coach of Eastwood, on the weekend as well. Yeah, we did. He was hoping that there would be more injuries in the um, in the uni-manly match. That was his main uh, point that he tried to get across. I mean... Uni and Eastwood are both going to have home prelim finals as well. So that's going to be a big hurdle for whoever gets into the preliminary final to take on. It's going to be interesting. I mean, at at the moment, you'd have to think it's going to be a Uni-Eastwood grand final. But stranger things have happened. And it is finals football. That intensity does funny things in the head. Well, we'll have to wait and see. You can catch all that action if you live inside Sydney or New South Wales on ABC One, both Saturday and Sunday afternoon footy. That's fantastic. On ABC TV. Uh, you can catch Nat, Al Baxter, and the rest of the team there. Nat, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Pat. And if you want to catch more free-to-air rugby, you can just go to ABC iView, follow the links to the Sports tab page, and you can find all the Shoot Shield action there with Al Baxter, Nat, and the rest of the team. I've been Patrick Folks here in the ABC Grandstand Studio. Thank you very much for joining me once again. If you want to catch this show again, you can. Just go to abc.net.au slash grandstand. Hit the podcast tab and follow the links to the clubhouse and become a regular subscriber. As always, you can join the conversation on Twitter. Just use the hashtag ABC Rugby. Until next time, though, wherever you play the game, enjoy your rugby.